Hello everybody, continuing my semi-regular look at the amazing Spider-Man from the very beginning. For those that are new, previous episodes in this series are The Palace of Glittering Delights, episode numbers 38, 40, 42, 44, 46, 49, 52, 93, 94, 108 and 113. All of which covered Amazing Fantasy 15 through Amazing Spider-Man 61. Gloriously entertaining they were too. Which means that this show picks up with Amazing Spider-Man 62. A stunning genre meter drawn cover greets our hurry eyeballs. An eye-catching white background focuses our attention on the green-clad ginger-herd beauty of the Inhumans, Medusa. Named after the mythical lady with the snake-like coiffure, Marvel Comics' Medusa simply has living her, meaning she can control it like regular appendages. As such, she has Spider-Man on his knees as she straddles him from behind, proving her dominance. You know, said like that, this cover is far more sexual than I first thought. I like that Medusa looks like she's a puppeteer on this cover, manipulating Spider-Man like he's a Jerry Anderson marionette. Make way for Medusa was another titanic triumph. It says here for Stan Lee and John Romita, interestingly blurring the lines here between writer and artist. Romita presumably provided the plot and breakdowns for this issue, as it was also delineated by Don Heck and inked by Mickey DeMio. The splash page tells us that Spidey will battle the most fabulous super-powered Glamazon in the history of comicdom. Glamazon. <laughs> we begin straight away with our hero's web cut by forces unknown. He's saved from certain death by the tantalising tentacles of Medusa, who berates Spidey for swinging in front of her monocruiser. Given her haughty attitude, I presume she's got a flight path logged and a license and everything. Spider-Man recognises Medusa, which proves the Inhumans are now well known, and he tries to argue his corner. Medusa says that his prattle is of no interest. She has been sent here by Black Bolt, leader of the Inhumans too, and I quote, Learn whether the rest of mankind still fears us, or if we may rejoin the unthinking, suspicious human race. I could be wrong, but I don't think Medusa is the unbiased third party Black Bolt was perhaps hoping for. Medusa leaves, apparently Spider-Man is not representative of the average Joe, and Spidey is happy to see her go. He's got his own problems, not least of which is Gwendolyn Stacy's belief that Peter Parker, Spidey's true self, has betrayed her father. This is a turn-up for the books. Gwen likes Spider-Man for saving George Stacy from death, but hates Peter Parker. Peter wishes it was the other way around, something we can file away in the Be Careful What You Wish For file. Medusa, meanwhile, has found a bunch of regular people she can ask about the Inhumans. She drops down out of the middle of the sky, her a-flapping in the breeze, her face masked, 
and then expresses surprise that the assembled throng seem panicked. It never occurs to her that, you know, maybe she was the cause of this rather than human distrust. Perhaps if she didn't have this holier-than-thou attitude, she may find herself better received. She saves a boy from being trampled by the crowd, a disturbance that she caused, but for whatever reason, the crowd start to mellow to her. The fact that she is stunningly beautiful has no influence whatsoever on the crowd's changing mood. She tells the people that she is here only to live in peace and be treated as an equal, and a local policeman tells her, that's cool. Medusa thinks she may have misjudged humanity. She is then approached by a representative of Heavenly Hairspray, who thinks that Medusa would be the perfect spokeswoman for their product. Medusa tells him money is no use to her, but the offer of work would allow her access to human society. Personally, I think they missed a trick here. Having Medusa realise that if the Inhumans want to live as one with humanity, then they'll need money could have been a great subplot. She could have been the breadwinner, as stupid old Black Bolt struggled to get a gig, because, let's be honest, being royalty doesn't really qualify you for a proper job. Imagine Gorgon and Triton trying to get real jobs in New York. Still, that subplot, interesting though it may be, is tossed aside. Shame, really. Medusa heads up to the offices of Montgomery G. Bliss, the owner of Heavenly Hairspray, to talk contracts. Peter, meanwhile, has walked over to Gwen's house. The dialogue lets the side down here, as Stan softens Gwen a little. Clearly, from the art alone, Gwen opens the door to Peter and then just slams it shut in his face, but the dialogue makes out that Gwen is willing to listen to what Peter has to say. Peter, though, has a melodramatic meltdown where he yells, I can't find the words to explain! This is quite dopey. As I mentioned last time, Peter could easily tell Gwen he followed upon Murray Jane's suspicions that something smelt wrong, saw Stacy Senior being brainwashed, knew he was innocent, and then took pictures to try and prove that fact. It's well known now that Peter and Spider-Man have an arrangement, so he tells Gwen he told Spidey all about this, and away we go. An almost true telling of the story without revealing he's Spider-Man. As such, the art makes more sense than the dialogue, as having Gwen slam the door without listening to Peter doesn't make him seem as much of an idiot. Still, Gwen hates herself for her actions. Her father, still in bed and recovering, wonders why she did that to the lad she considers the one, as he still doesn't fully remember what happened. Gwen can barely keep it all together. Oh, the romance, the drama, the sadness. Interlude. At the exclusive club that J. Jonah Jameson and Norman Osborne are members of, Jonah is pitching a fit that no one has got pictures of Medusa and whines about it to Osborne. Osborne tells him to fuck off. Jameson almost has a moment of decency here, wondering if he can help Norman because he's a friend, but then he ruins it by thinking there might be a story in it. One would have thought there were plenty of stories in it. Norman being there at the death of the Green Goblin is common knowledge, as is Craven's public attack on him, and his recent memory problems could all add up to an investigative piece about how he's coping, but this is largely ignored. Had there been some fallout, maybe Oscorp has fallen on the stock market due to Norman's perceived issues, that may have been a great reason for Osborne to start cracking up, and Jonah investigating him, but it's mentioned here that his chemical factory is doing better than ever. 
Norman, though, is having flashbacks. He remembers seeing Spider-Man unmasked, but he does not remember the face underneath the mask, and he's been driven insane by the visions. In a moment of unselfish reality, he wonders who would look after Harry if something were to happen to him. This is a rare moment in the strip of Norman actually giving a crap about his son. Normally, he's dismissive to the point of being abusive. It's an interesting beat, elevating Norman above a simple one-dimensional bad guy. If he's only a deadbeat dad to Harry when the serum is working, then that's almost a sympathetic portrayal of Norman, which is rare. Norman was always portrayed as an out-and-out bad guy, whereas even someone like Craven had some honourable motivations. Peter heads home, where he finds Harry studying. A nice touch, this, as it shows Harry has to work at keeping his grades up, whereas Peter, as Harry notes, finds academic life relatively easy. Not much else happens, though, so we'll cut back to Medusa, whose first modelling gig isn't going well. She's bored with all the standing around and posing her into different shapes, so she throws a fit and leaves. Bliss's sidekick, who looks a lot like Roy Thomas, is happy to call it a day and use the photos of her they do have. Especially she didn't sign a contract, but Bliss wants more. He wants a million dollars worth of publicity out of Medusa, and he'll have it! He calls to Spider-Man, who just happens to be swinging by. What a stroke of luck. Stan cocks up here. He states in panel 5 of page 10 that the photos are being taken in a midtown photography studio, but by panel 2 of page 12, they're all at Heavenly's HQ. Granted, this is the least of this issue's problems. For example, let's pause a moment and wonder not for the first time, just how in the hell time works in the Marvel Universe. The sky is blue in the opening pages, implying it is day. Maybe morning, could be the afternoon, we're given no indication. However, Gwen is at home and Peter is futzing about. Neither of them is at ESU. Gwen may be off, curring for her dad, so there's no real picture emerging as to the time. Jonah and Norman are at the exclusive men's club, often the place men go to after work. And sure enough, when Norman leaves, it's dark outside. Likewise, when Peter goes home, Harry is studying, and Peter says he didn't think Harry would be up this late. So we have a clear indicator here that this is all happening after the day at ESU. Presumably, Peter and Harry attended classes as usual, but Gwen did not, explaining why Peter hasn't seen her. However, this means Peter went straight back out as Spider-Man after getting home, as he mentions that everyone must be at home watching The Late Show. It's no wonder Medusa was bored. They've had her doing this all night. Bliss tells bald-faced lies to Spider-Man, saying that Medusa went crazy, attacked them, and fled. Spider-Man must stop her before she can do... something? Spidey thinks this sounds fishy, but chases after Medusa anyway, as Bliss sends his cameraman to the roof and the roofs of the nearby buildings, apparently. Bliss seems to have a lot of cameramen on standby for so late in the evening. Spider-Man and Medusa fight in front of a convenient Heavenly Hairspray billboard, and then we're treated to a mediocre fight of misunderstanding. Spider-Man seems put off by her hair being like fighting someone who has a thousand arms. If only Spider-Man had had experience of fighting someone with extra appendages. Hmm. He also claims he's never fought a woman before, which seems to ignore Princess Python and the Wasp, who, as we all know, is a natural adversary for spiders. 
Medusa keeps banging on about how humans are dumbasses for attacking without provocation, despite the fact Spider-Man has just told her all he wants to do is talk. Spidey then points out that even in the fight, women don't know when to shut up. That's rich coming from him. It's also something he wouldn't get away with today. Medusa can somehow cut Spider-Man's webbing with her her, but before the fight can continue, Spider-Man realises Medusa has no plans to decimate the city. I don't know where he got that idea from in the first place, but whatever. He tells Medusa he'll deal with Bliss, who has conned them both. Within moments, pictures of the fight have made all the newspapers and the TV news, because that's how things work in the Marvel U. Spider-Man has told news reporters that Medusa is unstable and uncontrollable, which is a bit of a slur on her character, but this results in heavenly sales figures plummeting overnight when no shops are open anyway. Bliss has been fired and his odious assistant promoted to company president. What the hell is this ending? Ignoring that newspapers seem to be published at light speed in the Marvel U, something I have talked about before, how did heavenly sales fall overnight? They haven't even published the Medusa photos yet. No one knows they are even involved with her. Why does Spider-Man think telling the news crews about how Medusa is wild and uncontrollable will help? I reckon she's going to be really pissed off when she hears about that. Who is the toady assistant? Why has he been made company president? That's a hell of a promotion. I think my big takeaway from this issue, though, is this makes no sense. <sighs> the story ends with Peter trudging home alone, it finally having gone dark. He bumps into Murray Jane, who is supremely insensitive when she says, Little Murray Jane heard the good news about you and Gwen being th What the fuck? Murray Jane bringing new life to the term bitch there. And Murray Jane is Gwen's best friend. I'd get better friends. Fortunately, Peter is in no mood for Murray Jane's shenanigans and wanders off. Well, pierce my ears and call me drafty, Murray Jane thinks. He really misses her. Oh shit, Sherlock. I'll give MJ points for observation, but then remove them instantly for insensitivity. I've got to be honest, I think this issue's a mess. I'd argue it's the single worst issue of Amazing thus far. The story is paper thin, it makes very little sense as a whole, but even in isolation it's dumb. There's a lot of happenstance, the time frame is whack, geography makes no sense, and there is absolutely no forward momentum on any of the big stories. Peter, Gwen, Harry and Murray Jane never appear together, meaning we get very little of that groovy 60s lingo we all enjoy. There are moments. This will be Hairspray's finest hour, is a laugh out loud line. And the subplot with Jonah and Norman is fun, but one decent line and a few good panels do not a good comic make. The only thing that saves this from mediocrity is that it's a 60s Marvel Spider-Man comic and, by definition, is at least mildly entertaining. But only mildly. Slapped in the omnibus here is Spectacular Spider-Man number one, a black and white magazine aimed at older readers, which means we get hot lesbian sex between Gwen and Mary Jane. Sadly, we don't get that. However, this story was retconned out of existence a scant four years later when Jerry Conway adapted the same story, art and all, into three issues of Amazing, running from issue 116 through 118. 
The black and white magazine is a simplistic tale of political corruption, and Stan would improve greatly upon that theme later on in his amazing run. Conway, in the aforementioned issues 116 through 118, would deepen the story. Romita would update the art, and as such, the later retelling is better than the original. And as such, I'll cover it when I get there. The black and white magazine is a curio, though, and worth a read, if only for the wonderful black and white Romita artwork. Issue 63 immediately bodes well. The cover sees the spider signal flash down upon two, count them, two vultures. But the original vulture is dead, as we saw in issue 48. Or is he? The two vultures flap their wings and scream angrily at an off-panel Spider-Man. It's already better than the last issue. Again, Ramita is aided and abetted by Don Heck and Mickey DeMio. What else was Ramita doing around this time to only be doing breakdowns on the book he ostensibly only took over just over a year ago? I don't think he takes over as art director until Jack Kirby leaves, so maybe he was busy on the magazine. The splash page is magnificent. A mean and moody shot of the original vulture, who has not yet been named Adrian Toomes, sits upon a New York cornice, the rain battering him from the heavens. He's crouched so his knees are almost up to his shoulders, and his wings drape around him like a cloak as he tenses his fist. It's a magnificently moody and noir-inflected piece of work. The Vulture, the original, except no substitutes incarnation, monologues about the time finally being right. After months of hiding, only he has the cunning, the power, the skill to carry out his carefully laid plan, as no one can duplicate his feats. Well, firstly, I'm willing to bet his plan isn't as carefully laid out as he thinks, and secondly, Blackie Drago duplicated his feats pretty easily. I mean, yes... He got his head handed to him by Spider-Man, eventually, after Spider-Man recovered from the flu, and with a bit of unplanned aid from Craven, but still. Another person abroad this night is Spider-Man himself. Apparently Spider-Man's webbing isn't waterproof and won't stick to surfaces that are wet. Really? This not only seems contradictory to what we've seen previously, but it's also an incredible design flaw. I can see the Daily Bugle headline now, Spider-Man taken out by inclement weather. Our hero plummets, but manages to land on a ledge, albeit on his shoulder, because apparently we can't have a Spider-Man vulture fight in which Spider-Man is in tip-top condition. As Spider-Man struggles to his feet, the vulture flies by as the two foes cross paths. Spidey thinks it's an hallucination brought on by the fall, and he stumbles home, narrowly avoiding the beat cop. He's glad it was a hallucination. He's in no shape to tackle one vulture, let alone two. Oh, Stan, you and your foreshadowing. The vulture, meanwhile, breaks into a New York museum. Doesn't really matter which one, does it? The wings Drago used have been put on display after Drago was captured. The vulture is flattered, but as the wings are his property, and as the museum didn't ask for permission, he has no problem carrying out his carefully laid plan. And what is that? I hear you lovely listeners ask. Well, the plan is to break in as loudly as possible, punch a guard in the face, and then fly away yelling, THE VULTURE LIVES AGAIN! You know, as plans go, this doesn't seem that intricate. Spider-Man returns home where he falls into bed in his still piss-wet-through costume. Peter, you'll catch your death of cold. 
He has nightmares about Gwen and the mess he's made of the relationship. Stan lays this all on pretty thick over the next few panels. The next day at ESU, Gwen gives Peter a pretty severe cold shoulder, and although Harry tries to patch things up between them, he just makes things worse. Gwen has returned to the Ice Queen persona she adopted when we first met her, shutting Peter out and ignoring him. Peter is heartbroken. She's in his thoughts constantly, and it's affecting his studies, as he can't concentrate in class. This would be all one-sided if, in the last panel, we weren't allowed access to Gwen's thoughts, which betray her real feelings that she would happily accept any explanation from Peter, anything to make it all all right between them again. And in this one panel, Stan successfully shows the star-crossed lovers at a major impasse. Three panels that are as heartfelt and heartbreaking as the best romantic fiction. I learned something interesting doing what I laughingly call research for this show. It's well known that Murray Jane was based upon Anne Margaret, but apparently Gwen was based upon Yvette Mimieux. I never knew that. Obviously Ditko isn't talking, but it was on the internet, so it must be true. Personally, I think Emma Stone should have played both Gwen and Murray Jane. That would have been pretty cool. Anyway, the Vulture is on to part two of his carefully laid plan. Break into Blackie's prison when he's on yard duty throw the spur wings at him, and then beat the crap out of some guards until they can both fly away. Again, not that intricate. This issue is much better than the last. Not only does it focus on two decent bad guys, but Peter's problems are getting far more panel time. Case in point, the next page, which sees Peter and Harry chewing the fat and just being friends. They have received a letter from Flash, in which he tells them he's shipping out to Vietnam. Harry notes the tone of the letter is far more mature than usual, and it seems that the army is a good thing for Flash. Peter says it must be a forgery, but Harry astutely points out that Peter and Flash will probably end up being the best of friends one day. And they did! Well, until the stupid stealth reboot that gave us the truly awful chapter one, which led into the not terribly good new number one. Still, at least Peter wasn't written as an inept 20-something who could barely tie his shoelaces together in the relaunch, unlike nowadays. Peter and Harry chat about their living arrangements. Peter feels guilty he's living rent-free, but Harry says not to worry about it. He's living rent-free as well. The apartment is Norman, so he foots the bill. Harry heads for the shower, so Peter wonders if he could possibly share his secret with Harry. He decides that wouldn't be fair to Harry. One of the major differences between the MCU and the CMU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the Comics Marvel Universe, is secret identities. Peter keeping this secret adds another burden to his character that helps define him. The movies don't really care about it. I'd like them to kill Aunt May or Ned in the next movie to show that there is a price to being so cavalier with your secret, but I doubt they'll do that. Peter calls Gwen again. George Stacy answers and really digs the knife in, telling Peter she's on a date. Ooh, burn. He does ask Peter to dinner tomorrow to discuss some things, and Peter accepts, albeit reluctantly. He wonders if George is putting together more information on who Spider-Man is. Norman Osborn drops by to see his son, Harry, but Norman's snappy and irritable. He keeps seeing an unmasked Spider-Man in his mind's eye, and for some reason seeing Peter causes him strange discomfort. Harry rushes out of the shower as Norman's dizzy spell passes, and Harry says he'll take him home and look after him. Peter worries about himself, 
What will he do if Norman regains his memory? Way to make it all about you, Peter. To be fair, Peter is still only 18 here, and we do tend to think of things in terms of how they affect us. Our first thought in a traffic jam isn't, I hope no one is hurt, it's normally, shit, I'm going to be late. Back to the vultures. Drago is trying to be all cool and alpha male, despite the fact he was a bit of a coward when the vultures showed up at prison. Drago thinks the vulture needs him, but this is all about revenge. After Drago's betrayal of tombs, he made a remarkable recovery, overpowering a guard in the wake of Drago's own escape. Taking the uniform of the guard, Tombs mingled with the other prison officers and just walked out the front door. Taking it easy for a spell, the vulture nursed himself back to health, built himself a new pair of wings, and now wants to defeat Drago to show the world who is the real vulture. Drago attacks first, with a headbutt to Tombs' belly, but Tombs boasts that all his foes underestimate him due to his seemingly advanced age, and he tosses Drago away. I wonder who else Toombs is thinking about when he says all his other foes, given these almost exclusively a Spider-Man villain. He's possibly counting Gregory Bestman in this list, in which case, sure, Adrian, all your foes have fallen before you. Or one of them. This is actually a really cool battle. It's not your usual Spider-Man versus the villain of the month, rather two adversaries of equal power duking it out. I did wonder how they can continue to fly and throw punches, but there is equal weight being given to headbutts and kicks. As luck would have it, this fight is occurring directly opposite the Daily Bugle building. And who should happen by? Why, Peter Parker! What a stroke of luck. However, Peter ignores the fight. He hopes they'll finish each other off because with his injured arm, he's out of commission. He heads inside the building, only for Jonah to rush him out to the roof to take pictures of the dueling vultures. Apparently all Jonah's staff photographers are out doing photo shoots for Heavenly Hairspray. Peter and Jonah's banter is a lot of fun throughout this scene, with Jonah even saying he won't pay Peter, because without Jonah, Peter wouldn't be here. Unions exist because of people like J. Jonah Jameson. Apparently, the Daily Bugle is directly opposite some apartment buildings, as a young child is watching the fight on a balcony from across the street. Suddenly, the battling budgies collide with the balcony, smashing it in half and causing the young tyke to cling on for dear life. Pete has to duck out, much to Jonah's chagrin, and change to Spider-Man to help the kid. He does, just as Toomes kicks the crap out of Drago. Spying our web-headed protagonist, the vulture moves in for the kill. But how can Spider-Man fight him? with a busted wing. Magnitudes better than the last issue. This story succeeds on every level because it's so off-concept. Spider-Man isn't the focus of the story, as he isn't in the best Spider-Man stories, but this is even more daring. The central figure in this issue is the villain. The entire story is about Adrian Toomes, still unnamed, but I'll happily accept it as such, getting his groove back. After nearly being killed off back in issue 47, he's back and fighting fit here, seeing off his successor and then turning on Spider-Man, more ruthless than ever before. A man with a clear mission. Take back what's his and destroy the opposition. Sure, his carefully laid plan is basically kick the shit out of Blackie Drago, but no one can say he doesn't execute it with a plomb. Spider-Man doesn't even take him on in this issue, making this a rare example of a superhero story where the hero and villain don't actually fight. 
The lack of the regular Spider-Man formula also means more time is spent with Harry, Peter, Gwen and Norm, nicely continuating the plots from previously. There's even time for a mention of Flash. Mary Jane isn't present at all and Jonah has little more than a cameo, but it's a great cameo with him on top form. Sure, Spider-Man's injury is a rehash of things we've seen before, but everything else is gold. In fact, this is the third time that Spider-Man has fought the Vulture while it's been injured or ill. A nice rebound, this, from last time's eminently skippable story. On to issue 64, which has a wonderful cover. I know, I know, getting boring, but it's John Romita doing covers. What do you want me to do? They're all great. Anyway, this one is a, a lushly penciled grayscale portrait of New York with the coloured forms of Spider-Man and the Vultures on top of it fighting with each other. The use of the monochromatic background that looks shot from the pencils underneath the more traditional heavily inked and coloured main characters really makes this cover pop. The Vulture's Prey picks up where last issue left off with the same creative team. Spider-Man hangs over a chimney stack as the shadow of the Vulture passes over him. He holds his sore arm. Stan has really let himself stop talking when he doesn't need to, with a splash that just lets the art tell the story. No superfluous text or dialogue, just a recap of last issue, and we're off. Jonah is still watching the developments as they unfold, cursing out Peter Parker for not being around to take photos. As in, he proper swears. Yes, yeah, Stan uses the usual dollar sign, percentage, hashtag, exclamation point. But this could be the very first time Jonah actually says fucking. He's bemoaning his lack of a photographer. And I'm wondering why he can't snap off a few pictures himself. Then I remember this is 1968 and we didn't have cameras in our pockets at all times. Robbie Robertson, in an eyesore clashing pink shirt, brown pants ensemble, pushes a photographer onto the roof, which delights Jonah. After all, he may be witnessing the end of Spider-Man. After the last issue, which was all interpersonal drama, this is all fight. The vulture swoops in, noticing Spidey favouring his arm, but Spider-Man pulls the double foot kick so beloved by Captain James T. Kirk. This dazes the vulture, but according to noted scientist Peter Parker, the vulture can use the ur to cushion the impact. What? Use the ur to cushion the impact. So you can use nothing as a cushion. Is that a thing? This really looks like an unneeded Stan addition, as the art clearly shows the Vulture struggling to regain control of his flight path after being kicked. The art is standout here. The panels are a lot bigger, often only two to a page, as Ramita's breakdowns open up to show a proper urban duel. I do love a fight like this. Big, expansive battle scenes over the New York landscape, emphasising the mad cap against the realistic. Don Heck seems to be channelling Ramita a lot more now. Either that or Ramita is providing touch-ups on the faces as Jonah, Robbie and the Vulture all look very Ramita-like. The Vulture kicks back, destroying the chimney stack Spider-Man sits upon and forcing him on the defensive. The Vulture has the high ground here, literally. But again, Spider-Man is injured. I actually think the Vulture is a good enough villain to not need a handicap. Spider-Man backhands the Vulture and then webs his legs as Spidey struggles to maintain his balance with a wounded wing. The fight migrates to the bugle rooftop and the photographer legs it after Spider-Man, telling them to bugger off. Jonah and Robbie don't listen and the vulture slams Spidey into them both, leading Jonah to conclude that Spider-Man is trying to kill them. 
Spider-Man makes the mistake of calling Robbie by name, something that doesn't escape the esteemed Mr. Robertson's notice. Jonah is rooting for the Vulture, a situation he doubles down on when the Vulture attacks Spider-Man, dislodging the Daily Bugle sign atop the building. The resultant debris would have killed them if Robbie hadn't pushed them both out of the way, despite hurting himself in the act. Robbie is down, hit by rubble, and Jonah vows to crush the wall crawler if Robbie is seriously injured. Could this be any more Spider-Man? Nothing he does here is right. The vulture has the upper hand, Jonah sees everything Spider-Man does and as an attack on him personally, and the only person on Spidey's side, Robbie, is hurt inadvertently. This is great stuff. Jonah then tackles Spider-Man. He pins Spidey's arms behind his back and invites the vulture in for the kill. Jonah is practically unhinged here. In true Jameson fashion, he's brought this all on himself, but blames everyone else for the situation he finds himself in. His irrational hatred for Spider-Man is all-consuming and blinding him to the real truth. Spider-Man, for his part, has had just enough of Jonah and webs him up. Spidey then tends to Robbie. It's at this point Stan, or the artist, switches scene. Talk about diffusing the tension. Murray Jane rocks up at Aunt Anna slash May's house with a ginchy new herdo. They have no idea what a ginchy is. Murray Jane has shaven off her auburn locks and gone for a curly perm. She's popped over to see if Peter is there because, despite all protestations to the contrary, Murray Jane has it bad for our brown-eyed anti-heartthrob. She talks about herself a bit, never once asking how her ageing aunt is, and then takes off to the coffee bean to see if Peter's there. We then switch scenes again. George Stacy has been to the doctor and he's made a remarkable recovery physically and mentally. He now remembers all of the events concerning the brainwashing story and also that Peter was trying to help. He walks over to ESU to tell Gwen, who is delighted. The walk and talk takes them past the Bugle building where a gathering crowd are watching the fight. Betty Brandt tells Gwen Peter is up there taking photos, which causes Gwen no end of stress. Oddly, former girlfriend of Peter calls him Parker, which struck me as a tad odd. The fight continues in the sky above Gwen's head, and it's a rare Spider-Man battle scene that is really quite brutal. Neither man is taking it easy on the other. The vulture is out for blood, and Spider-Man is forced to defend himself with equal aggressiveness. Page 17 is masterfully laid out. In contrast to the rest of the fight scene, which are wide open panels, this page has eight panels, all long and thin, four on the top, four on the bottom. Each panel is the vulture relentlessly pounding on Spider-Man as our hero slowly loses his grip and falls further and further down the vulture's body, which he clings to for dear life. Until, in the final desperate panels, Spider-Man falls. The vulture laughs loud and long at his vanquished foe. But if Spider-Man has taught us anything, it's that we never give up. Never surrender. Even as he falls, Spider-Man manages to turn death into a fighting chance for life. He manages to spin a web cushion, not enough to fully prevent the bone-cracking impact, but at least enough to save his life. The vulture is not pleased and flies down to kill his prey. The vulture crouches over Spider-Man's prostrate body, but moves in too close, and Spider-Man grabs hold of the power pack that operates the vulture's wings, digging his fingers in and destroying the delicate machinery. The vulture flees as Spider-Man taunts him. As the vulture wobbles away, our hero passes out in front of the baying crowd. What 
a corker. After the risible Medusa issue, Lee, Ramita, Heck and DeMille pull the rug out from under us with a great two-part story that features plots, subplots, characterization, action and drama. From the depths of issue 62 to the heights of these two issues is jarring, but hey, that's why we love comics, right? Despite being a villain of long standing, the Vulture was not seen again until Peter Parker the Spectacular Spider-Man issue number four in 1977, nine years hence. Maybe the Vulture wised up and lived a quiet life, only stealing when he needed more money. A Vulture will appear in Amazing Spider-Man 127, but it isn't Adrian Toomes, rather another copycat. Anyway, the saga continues into Amazing Spider-Man 65, Escape Impossible or The Impossible Escape. Both titles appear, both on the cover and on the splash page. The cover is more Ramita awesomeness. Spider-Man runs along a wall in a prison, a gaggle of goons in prison fatigues behind him. Don Heck and Mickey DeMio have gone, making this the first true Lee Ramita joint for a while. Ramita is aided on this issue by the inking of Supergirl mainstay Jim Mooney. We pick up exactly where we left off, with Spider-Man still passed out in front of the bugle, with the crowd a mix of rational people wondering if he's okay, and a more sizable number of people baying for his blood with cries of UNMASK HIM! Scenes like this made me think that Stan often had a really low opinion of people. Voice of reason, Captain Stacy points out that wearing a mask isn't actually illegal, and Spider-Man hasn't actually been charged with any crimes, so removing the mask may be a violation of his civil rights. J. Jonah Jameson is apparently willing to throw civil rights out of the window in this case, accusing Stacy of being a nut and asking, who cares about rights at a time like this? You know, there are times when it's really difficult to like Jonah. Gwen, meanwhile, searches frantically for Peter, but no one knows where he is. In a delicious piece of Stanley irony, Peter is right there. George tries to calm Gwen, but tells her he needs to leave to go with Spider-Man, who's been taken to the local prison infirmary. The police may not know the exact charges, but Spider-Man is still a person of interest. I was wondering about this. After the death of Norman, spoilers, Spider-Man will be wanted for questioning in that mysterious death, but here he's not really wanted for anything. George is right and Jameson's wrong. Arguably, they have no right taking him to prison. Rather, they should take him to a hospital. However... Spider-Man has committed enough minor transgressions against members of the police force to at least raise some charges of assault against him. There's a lot of grey here in the police treatment of Spider-Man, and a substantial case could be argued they feel he'd be safer, as would other patients, if he's at a prison infirmary. Jonah, meanwhile, interrupts Robbie being checked over by a doctor. Mr. Robertson has a few minor cuts and bruises, nothing serious, which Jameson attributes to the fact that it was he, Jonah, looking after Robbie. You know, there are times I think Jonah lives a deluded Walter Mitty-like existence. Jonah dismisses the vulture getting away with a, who cares about him? Yeah, Jonah, who cares about the guy who very nearly killed both a small child and your city editor? When Robbie points out that Spider-Man was protecting the city against the Vulture, Jameson says, It was a grudge match, and I hate people who hold a grudge. The funniest line of the issue by far. Spider-Man is taken to the prison infirmary. Stan doesn't specify which prison, but in Marvel Land, New York is this teeny tiny place where everything is in short walking distance. 
ESU is a few speech balloons away from the Bugle, which is but a few more speech balloons away from the Stacey House. The debates between the prison guards, the warden and the doctors mimic the crowds regarding Spidey's civil rights, but George Stacey's carries some weight and he wants this done by the book and that's how it's going to be. Spider-Man wakes up during these conversations and, hearing they have no plan to unmask him, he dozes back off, using the opportunity to get some much-needed rest. George phones Gwen to tell her he'll be late home. When Gwen tells him no one has seen Peter, he tells her, eh, he's probably on a date with another girl. George said the same thing to Peter a few issues ago, but about Gwen, which proves that George has an A in trolling. He's suddenly snatched off the phone by a group of thugs who have somehow managed to get out of their cells and are in the middle of a prison break through the infirmary. What are the odds? The goons aren't aware of the increased police presence due to Spider-Man being there, so grabbing Stacy is a lucky happenstance. Spider-Man is feeling better due to his rest, but he's still not in tip-top shape when he's awoken by these scheming goons. After some typical soul-searching about the best approach, Spider-Man decides to throw in with the escapees so as not to get Captain Stacy hurt. What follows is a well-executed, well-drawn, very tense issue, whereby Spider-Man must work with the criminals while simultaneously taking them out one by one. He does this by taking out a junction box, plunging the prison into darkness and telling the not-too-bright criminals that being in the dark makes it easier for them to escape. The sequences where Spider-Man hunts the gang down, taking them out quietly and quickly, is very like a modern video game, where you have to sneak up on the adversaries and web them up before they see you and open fire. These sequences are exceptionally well handled by Ramita. Another nice touch, and one not seen a lot in comics of this era, is Peter's bruised and swollen face. As we saw last issue, the Vulture kicked the crap out of him, and seeing that represented here is a reminder that Spider-Man can get hurt doing what he does. He removes his mask to make a sneaky call to Aunt May, but because Peter is very stupid, instead of telling her he's at ESU or whatever, he says, I can't tell you where I am, making things worse. Stan and John still squeeze in a quick update on the supporting cast. Harry is at the exclusive men's club that Jonah and his father are members of, looking for his missing father. This is a tad odd, as when we last saw Harry and Norman, Harry was taking Norman home to look after him. Although, I suppose it's a good thing in that we don't see everything that happens to these people. They have lives independent of Peter. In another example of this incredibly small New York, Murray Jane happens by as Harry leaves the club, only to be every bit as narcissistic as she always is. You look like you lost your last thrilling Dylan disc, she tells Harry. And in lieu of actually asking him what's the matter, she tells him to say hello to the other swingers at the funeral home. You know, MJ is supposed to be flighty, but she's a borderline Kardashian in these stories, interested only in Murray Jane and what Murray Jane is doing. I'd be interested, though, in an untold tale preferably by a good writer like Kurt Busiek, that looks at these stories and shows us what Murray Jane is up to when she's not in the strip. Given that we later learn that Murray Jane's attitude is mostly an affectation, I'd like to see her when she's not acting. I've always thought that of all the Spider-Man supporting characters, Murray Jane in this era is the one that probably has a life further away from Peter, Gwen, Flash, Harry, etc, etc. What is Murray Jane doing when she's not in the orbit of our supporting cast? Because it seems to me she's the one out there doing whatever it is she does at ESU, getting jobs dancing. Murray Jane is the one who has a life in many ways, and it would be interesting to explore that life. 
Back at the prison, Spider-Man succeeds in taking out the last man standing and rescues George. George offers to be a character witness for Spider-Man, but Spidey says he can't risk that in case they want him to unmask, and he takes his leave. Weirdly, he then hangs around long enough to watch as Jonah arrives to give Stacy and the Warden a lecture about how he, Jonah, would never have let Spider-Man escape. The final panel of Spidey hanging in the shadows watching George patiently listen to Jonah is a standout. Not on the same level as the Vulture two-parter, but nevertheless, not a bad issue, this. It's a tense, done-in-one that successfully carries over plot strands from previous issues, while simultaneously setting up new subplots. Ramita's art is great, and his plotting is well done. Issue 66 has a larger-than-life Mysterio appearing in a puff of smoke before a swinging Spider-Man. The madness of Mysterio sees Don Heck and Mickey DeMio return, as Ramita goes back to providing breakdowns and, presumably, the plot. As with the cover, an oversized Mysterio stands, his arm outstretched, looming over what looks like Coney Island or some other such New York-based fairground. The stage is set. The plan completed. The time has come. After these many months, Mysterio will have his fatal revenge upon the unsuspecting Spider-Man. Mysterio last appeared in the truly dreadful annual number four and was incarcerated at the end of that story. He got himself assigned to pharmacy where he worked his chemical magic and escaped. As he bangs on and on, it turns out that Mysterio isn't embiggened at all. Rather, he made himself a nice toy model of a typical amusement park. It's properly to scale and everything, so fair play to Mysterio. He was the Derek Meddings of his day. Mysterio has been upgrading his tech. He has a new psychedelic power in his helmet and a bizarre new weapon with a sniper scope on it. Mysterio continues to quote from the supervillain book of cliched dialogue, announcing to no one in particular that I've worked too hard, waited too long, planned too well for anything to go wrong now. Don't know why William Shatner's playing Mysterio. And what of the object of Mysterio's ire? Well, he's searching the rubble atop the Daily Bugle building for his clothes and camera, lost whilst he battled the Vulture. Fortunately, they are still there, possibly because, as Spidey muses, Jonah's too cheap to buy a broom. A lovely little continuity nod, this. Few other comics of the time would have bothered with a small detail like this one, but it really sells the verisimilitude of the strip. Peter can't afford to lose clothing or equipment willy-nilly. Peter then heads home for a restless night's sleep. Harry must have told Peter about Norman, as he frets about that, about May, about Gwen, hell, about anything and everything. Poor Peter gets up early, where he gets his first bit of good news. His bruises are healing nicely, a nice side effect of his powers. Granted, if he didn't have his powers, he wouldn't have had the bruises in the first place, but, you know, swings and roundabouts. It's the early part of the issue, so it's time to give the audience the Daily Bugle fix. Peter tries to apologise to Jonah for fleeing, but Jonah's having none of that, kicking Peter out. Sadly, the photos Jonah commissioned from another photographer are all blurry and out of focus. It's hard to feel for Jonah, though, especially as Peter has a torn shirt and no money. He has to sell his bike. This was a bit of a bummer. Peter's bike represented his freedom and sense of self, his growing maturity, that he was no longer tied to Aunt May's apron strings. Having to sell it for half its going rate is a real blow to him. As Peter walks away, Mysterio appears quite randomly. Mysterio seems 
not to want anything, turning down money from a store owner who thinks he's being robbed. When Mysterio vanishes before the eyes of the crowd, Peter vows to track him down, but then pauses. Why should he? What will Peter Parker get out of this apart from grief and more bruises? He's not going back on his oath. If someone is in trouble, he'll help, but why should he go looking for it? It's actually a good point. Why should Peter go after Mysterio? Moments like this humanise Peter. Oh, we know he'll change his mind, but I'm sure we've all had moments where we'd slap ourselves on the head and wonder, why are we bothering? The hero that could be you, remember? Peter's spider sense gives off a minor tingle, and that's because Mysterio didn't disappear completely, rather he popped down into the sewer. Oddly, he thought Spider-Man would appear instantly, because, well, comics. In another odd coincidence, Gwen just happens to walk right into Peter, and they have a tearful reunion when Gwen tells Peter that George's memory has returned, and he has exonerated Peter. Gwen is delighted, Peter is delighted, and they spend the afternoon in each other's arms and then stirring into each other's eyes over a java at the coffee bean. Aww. Elsewhere, Peter's problems may be getting worse. After inadvertently blurting out Robbie's name a few issues ago, the Bugle's new city editor has arranged a lunch date with Captain Stacy to discuss Spider-Man. Robbie and George have a meaningful discussion about the wall crawler, as both men believe he's a force for good. They speculate on his motives and how they both feel that he's someone they know, or, at the very least, someone who knows them. Robbie even calls Jonah's hatred of Spider-Man psychotic. Even Jonah's closest confidant thinks Jonah is borderline insane when it comes to Spider-Man. This is a fascinating scene, one I would have liked to have seen explored for longer. As we know, George will figure out Peter's secret, although we don't find out when. And this is clearly laying the groundwork for one or both men figuring it out. Some readers have speculated that George knows here, but I don't think he does. I think the prison incident was the beginning of him putting everything that he knew subconsciously together with Peter having disappeared and Gwen being unable to find him just as Spider-Man is unconscious before him. George had already figured out that Spider-Man was young and this conversation with Robbie, I feel, would be very different if George knew at this point. I do think he has all the pieces here. I just don't think he's quite put them all together just yet. For years, readers have speculated that Robbie also knows, and the writers have done a good job of dancing around that. Many Robbie scenes from later on can be read either way, but it's never been confirmed one way or another. In current comics, Jonah knows, so it's curious that the writers haven't revisited this to have Robbie and Jonah talk. After his day with Gwen, Peter returns to his apartment just as Harry arrives home. Peter, not being a raving narcissist, is concerned for Harry, who still hasn't found Norman. He offers to help Harry look, and they check out Osborne's chemical factory. They get no joy from security, but Norman watches from his office. Horror of horrors. He's clad in his green goblin outfit. He hasn't yet remembered Spider-Man's true face, but it can't be far away, as his memory is clearing with each passing moment. Harry drops Peter off at Aunt May's. The melodrama is strong in this scene. Peter hears a cry of, oh no, and forgets himself, shattering the lock on the door. Apparently May's reaction is to Mysterio, 
who has taken over all the TV channels, threatening to end New York with his special effects powers? Hmm. I actually thought this scene was hysterical. Mysterio acts like he's Robert Stack or Leonard Nimoy, pompously hosting some show about disasters or UFOs. He's showing off his effects technology by screening a mock-up of New York being destroyed. The sight you are witnessing is pure fantasy, Mysterio intones pretentiously, but it could happen. I have the power to do it, as I have the power to preempt the TV show you were watching. Well, no. Taking over a TV channel to show some models being tossed about on a cardboard set isn't quite the same as being able to destroy New York with an earthquake. Mysterio really has an overinflated sense of self. But May is equally funny. She must be a really delicate flower to get upset over a special effects sequence. It's all too much of a shock for her, and Peter has Anna Watson called the Doctor as he takes off after Mysterio. Mysterio then issues an ominous warning that he will kill Spider-Man at the side of the first battle. Anna is pissed at Peter for leaving, and who can blame her? He's bust her door wide open. Who's paying for that, Pete? Peter dons the red and blues and swings over to where he and Mysterio first fought, the old studio building. Spider-Man isn't his usual jovial self, because seeing Mysterio on TV caused his aunt to go all funny, and he leaps straight into the fray. As you may expect, this means he gets pasted. The fight is pretty standard Mysterio stuff. There's a lot of smoke and illusions that lead to Mysterio firing the weapon he mentioned earlier at Spidey, and Romita milks its effects for an entire page before concluding with a splash. On the splash, Mysterio looms over the tabletop model, upon which a six-inch Spider-Man stands. Yes, honey, I shrunk the Spider-Man. Mysterio has shrunk our hero down to the size of a real spider. This is a good, but not great issue. Mysterio's a fun villain whose power set leads to some cool visuals, but he's not really utilised that well here. Mysterio isn't on the level of a craven, a scorpion, or a vulture in the power level department, so he relies on his illusions, but once Spider-Man knows his shtick, it's game over. There is some gold here that could be mined in that Spider-Man doesn't really give Mysterio that much thought, but Mysterio's obsessed with Spider-Man. I get the impression that Spidey doesn't really consider Mysterio that big of a deal, doesn't really think about him that much. That's just my interpretation, though, not part of the story. The better parts of this are the Green Goblin reveal and the Stacey Robertson conversation, neither of which bode well for Peter. Issue 67's cover is another great Ramita piece of art. Yeah, 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 yeah. Once again, very eye-catching. Mysterio's giant hands prepare to cup Spider-Man in their palms and then crush the life out of him. John Ramita is back to providing full pencils for Jim Mooney to ink. Those self-same hands become a fist on the splash page, which thuds down on the tabletop amusement arcade, almost crushing our hero. To squash a spider is the title, and the splash shows this is an almost literal event. Spider-Man continues to dodge the mighty fists of Mysterio as he ponders how his life's choices brought him to this moment. His keen mind is already wondering why Mysterio keeps vanishing if this is as easy a victory as Mysterio keeps boasting. He barely has time to continue with these thoughts as Mysterio lures him into the Hall of Mirrors. Yes, Mysterio has even paid careful attention to detail to the interiors of the buildings, and as Spider-Man starts to panic, Mysterio closes the Hall of Mirrors in on Spidey. 
One thing's for sure, he's going to be a lot thinner. At that very moment, May Parker awakens with a start. She can't explain it, but she's sure Peter is in some kind of trouble. This is an amazing ESP ability that May has, given that technically Peter isn't a blood relative. ESP, or extrasensory perception, was big in the late 60s, with episodes of Star Trek and UFO centred on the subject. And this may have been Stan Lee jumping on that bandwagon. Doc Bromwell is in the middle of making a house call. Somewhat rare, I understand, in the 1960s, but not uncommon. And he character assassinates poor Peter, calling him flighty, useless and footloose. Don't mince words, Doc. What do you really feel? Over at the Bugle, Jonah wants to know what's happening with Spider-Man and Mysterio's televisual challenge. But Robbie points out they can't write the news until it's happened. And what is happening? Well, Mysterio has been stupid enough to tell Spider-Man that the mirrors are only glass. And he can shatter glass. But if he does, and if he gets scratched, Mysterio's coated the mirrors with a deadly poison. Why? Why tell Spider-Man this? It just means he can web up his forearms, making it possible to break free without cutting himself. Spider-Man then falls into a deep whirlpool behind the mirrors and nearly drowns. Each trap leading to another can become exhausting, but Ramita draws the crap out of these pages, altering angles, panel layouts, moving between close-ups and wide shots to convey the terror admirably. The exhaustion is deliberate as well, as Mysterio is keeping Spider-Man off balance to disguise his true intent. And as Spidey battles a killer sea serpent, which every good amusement park should have, we cut back to our stalwart cast of characters, in this case George and Gwen Stacy. George takes a phone call from Robbie about the Mysterio situation, but it goes no further than that when Robbie's son Randy walks in. This, I believe, is Randy's first appearance, and he's also at ESU, like Peter, Gwen, MJ, possibly, Harry and the gang. Nice to see Stan and John introducing some diversity in the cast. None of this amounts to much, though, as before the scenes can be allowed to breathe, we're back to giant Mysterio attacking little old Spider-Man. And little old Spider-Man has figured it all out. As with everything Mysterio, it's all an illusion. Well, massive Mysterio is anyway. The story never explains if the amusement arcade is life-sized or not. If it is, where the hell is it? We only ever saw the tabletop model. Once again, the jig is up. Mysterio is no match for Spider-Man on a power level, and he's out for the count within two panels. I really liked these two issues, but they highlight the problem with Mysterio as a villain. He's a one-trick pony that Stanley and Steve Ditko managed to squeeze two tricks out of in their run. Mysterio is a character who needs a severe overhaul every time he appears. Otherwise, it is the same old shtick. Use your illusion. Use your illusion too. Spidey figures it out. End scene. Had Spidey closed his eyes here and followed his spider senses in the same way he did the first time they met, this would have been exactly the same story. Ramita's visuals help it along and it's fun to read, but it's not essential. Spider-Man leaves Mysterio webbed up for the cops, although we don't see him call them to collect him. As he leaves, Spider-Man swings over a student demonstration that in a typically Stan Lee example of foreshadowing sees him think, well, at least that's got nothing to do with me. <laughs> we'll see about that. But not immediately. Unlike Spectacular Spider-Man Magazine number one, which was black and white and largely continuity free, Spectacular Spider-Man Magazine number two is in colour and part of the overall tapestry of the main strip of the time. 
Entitled The Goblin Lives, this 58-page super-length sensation was by Lee, Ramita and Mooney and begins with a one-page flashback to Spidey's origin. This one page is responsible for so many continuity errors in that it includes Harry in a high school flashback stood next to Liz Allen and Flash Thompson. It's enough to drive the continuity cops crazy. Speaking of things that make the continuity cops crazy, try and fit the last appearance of Norman Osborn, where he was in his office at work already dressed as the Green Goblin, into this story without going mad. In addition... Wonder how Peter still has his bike here, despite selling it a few issues ago. The cover is gorgeous and fully painted by John Romita. It has the goblin laughing as he hovers on his glider, finger-banging Spider-Man who looks in deep distress. As you would. A stunning cover. Now, full disclosure, I've covered this issue before in Hey Kids Comics way back in the day on a show called Spider-Man Month Week 1. Sadly... Or not, as far as you're concerned, I don't have my original notes, so I've had to make new ones. I hope you appreciate the effort I go to for this. Thankfully, this is a great story, even though it is somewhat slight. The basic gist of it is Mad Norman Osborn recovers his memory and engages in a deadly cat-and-mouse game with Peter Parker, using all the people in Peter's life, May, Gwen, Mary Jane, and even Harry himself, as pawns in his personal vendetta. What the story lacks in depth, it makes up in pure suspense. Honestly, the pacing in this one, the tightening of the screws as Norman messes around with Peter's head, the visual splendour as Ramita milks every ounce of tension out of the build-up, is almost Hitchcockian in its intensity. The almost triple-length nature of the story allows for bigger, more expansive panels. Full-page and double-page splashes, half-page panels, dream sequences, flashbacks, hallucinatory scenes. It's all here, including moments where it looks like the pencils have been reproduced exactly. So detailed is the line work. Continuity, though, is seriously out of whack. In addition to the two mistakes mentioned above, Peter's recollections of his and the Goblin's first meeting does not resemble the story told in that issue. But maybe Peter's memory is cheating him. The story opens with George Stacy hosting a criminology seminar at the exclusive club he and Jonah and Norman are members of. And Harry and Peter have also been invited. Oddly, given this is a lecture about the Green Goblin and Spider-Man, Robbie has not been invited. The images cause poor Norman to have panic attacks, cold sweat, and he passes out, which results in some funny dialogue between George and Jonah about Jonah's mental health. Norman's mental health is more pertinent, for during the night, Norman realises that he is the goblin. Norman then proceeds to plague Peter's thoughts. He can't concentrate on work, he clumsily exposes his powers to a small child, and he, he's not even paying Gwen any attention, blowing off a definite shag when she invites him in for a coffee. I choose to take this as proof that sins past cannot happen if Gwen is inviting Peter in at late at night for a coffee because you know i'll settle for a cup of coffee but you know what i really mean right gwen and peter have a nice relationship in this issue they have a wonderful easy banter peter can't believe how lucky he is and under ramita's pencils we can agree with him for the party gwen has a red mini dress fishnet stockings red heels and a white leather jacket and she looks stunning they even have a moment where they discuss marriage for a moment or two Peter, referring to Gwen as a centrefold pin-up, can be a compliment, depending on the magazine. 
The scene where a supposedly perfectly fine Norman invites Peter, Harry, Mary Jane and Gwen to dinner is a masterclass in comics tension. Mary Jane still has the perm, but from the minute Norman enters the room, he's almost entirely focused on Peter. Weirdly, again, in contradiction to Sin's past, he pays Gwen no never mind. Ramita cuts between close-ups of an unhinged Norman Osborn and wider shots of a panicked Peter Parker. It's here where the Green Goblin really becomes Spider-Man's main adversary, as this is a battle of wits between Peter and Norman, not the Green Goblin and Spider-Man. The final fight is 15 pages long, and it's one of the better ones, with the final confrontation being a battle of wills and all in the mind. It's a bit of a cop-out that the story ends in exactly the same way that it began, with Norman losing all recollection of being the Goblin. It all ends well, though. Peter takes Norman to the hospital and everything is copacetic. Peter even ends the day with Gwen and Murray Jane on his arms, taking them both to the coffee bean. Well, Gwen has mentioned that she's up for a threesome. All told, this is a pretty great issue. I mean, sure, it can be read that Peter manipulates a mentally ill man into cracking up just so he can protect himself, but let's assume he's a tad more altruistic than that, and this is really all for the greater good. The art is great, and whilst the story is padded ever so slightly, this is a tense read. The final page advertising the next issue, the TV terror, never saw the light of day, as there never was a spectacular Spider-Man magazine number three. And finally tonight, another annual, this time Amazing Spider-Man annual number five, The Parents of Peter Parker, by Stan Lee and Laddie Lieber, with inks by Mickey DeMeo. Apparently John Romita co-plotted this story and provides a nicely psychedelic cover. Throughout the strip's run so far, Peter's parents have rarely, if ever, been mentioned. It's also been assumed they died young enough that Peter has no real memory of them, which also explains why he treasures his aunt and uncle so much, as he is aware, albeit on some small level, that life is transitory and can be taken away in a moment. I think most readers assume that Peter's family were killed in a mundane but tragic way, a car crash or something similar, and this would fit in with Peter's life so far, the hero that could be you, but this is a Stan Lee comic and mundanity isn't on the cards. Spider-Man is rocking the Casbah, a visit caused in part by finding out his parents were traitors. Yes, Richard and Murray Parker died in disgrace, involved in a spy plot against the United States. Peter refuses to believe it and follows the breadcrumbs which leads him to an Algeria populated by raging stereotypes where he learns that Richard worked for the Red Skull. However, further investigation results in Spidey learning they were actually CIA agents working to secretly overthrow the Skull. This was later retconned to have them be agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. I'm not spending a lot of time on this story as, well, I really don't like it. Lots of people bang on about Spider-Man's appeal being about responsibility and power, and that's true to a large extent, but another less harped upon aspect of the character, something that was exploited admirably in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, was the hero that could be you. That was a large part of the strip's appeal to me as a kid. And having his parents not only be super spies, but agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. kind of takes away from that. It suddenly puts Peter on the radar of S.H.I.E.L.D., Nick Fury, Captain America, and even some less savoury characters like Hydra or the Red Skull. It takes away from his appeal to know his parents were anything but normal people. Not only that, but... 
this story is quite dumb. It's a few minor instances of melodrama padded out with rather routine action scenes. There's a remarkable level of coincidence to the story as well, even by Stan Lee's standards. Spider-Man tracks down the guy who identified his parents' bodies almost immediately upon his arrival in Algeria. The Red Skull, oddly, doesn't have everybody connected to this scheme killed instantly. And then, of course, there's the ridiculous notion that Richard Parker keeps his CIA ID inside his Red Skull ID, which just beggars belief. It's also really odd that no one ever mentioned Peter's parents to Peter, especially when you consider that their traitorous actions made front-page news. In addition, the story ties Peter's parents to World War II, which dates them in a way it's hard to ignore, even with the retcon that this wasn't the Red Skull of World War II at all, but another Red Skull who was active in later years. Also, just because Peter knows the truth doesn't mean anyone else does. We see no evidence that Peter takes the card to the authorities to exonerate his parents in any way. The scripts and art aren't really up to snuff for an annual, and this feels very much by the numbers even if it does have a major revelation for the main character. Stan must have realised that this was a mistake almost instantly, as Peter's parents go back to never being mentioned again until the 90s, when creative bankruptcy on Marvel's part saw no part of their history being sacred, and Richard and Murray returned to kick off the clone saga. And that about wraps this one up for now. I'll be back with further instalments down the line. Listen to this promo, and then I'll be back with your emails. Well, if you emailed in, obviously. In 2014, two comic fans joined forces to do a Doom Patrol podcast. As there was no Doom Patrol comic series at the time, they called it Waiting for Doom. That was us, me, Mike, and him, Paul. In 2016, DC Comics became fearful of the power of Waiting for Doom and sought to appease us by bringing the comic back. Uh, That's not exactly how it went. In 2018, terrified of the sheer horde organising power of Waiting for Doom, DC Universe announced a Doom Patrol TV show. Uh, I think they were planning that without us. In 2019, they again brought back the Doom Patrol comic, hoping we would not smite them. Uh, This makes no sense. In 2021, they realised we were the most unstoppable force in existence and released the Doom Patrol movie. Uh, This is pure fantasy now. In 2022, a terrified Motion Picture Academy awarded the Doom Patrol movie every single Oscar, including Best Documentary and Foreign Language Film. Uh, That's enough, Paul. Look, we just love the Doom Patrol and have fun talking about them. You can find us on all podcast places and now Spotify. And check out our website, waitingfordoom.com, or we will wipe you out, all of you. Okay, let's crack on with a couple of emails, should we? Uh, First one tonight... It's from Luke Giaconetti, the original Endgame. Captain Leyland, I just finished listening to your third and final instalment for Star Trek Voyager. First off, I must say that it's made for a very entertaining trilogy of episodes, and I appreciated being able to hear your thoughts and opinions on the series through a fresh viewing. There's a lot of good stuff in these last couple of seasons, and ultimately it's still the characters and cast who carry the show. 
The cast always appealed to me, and after the first few years, they were the main draw. There would always be another new alien race, another new struggle, but just being with these characters week in and week out was a lot of fun. I missed that on The Next Generation and Deep Space Nine, but I got it here, and it hooked me good. I always remember Endgame being from the school of the big blowout finish finale, an explosive spectacle because you've got an extra pile of cash to finish up the show, and let's face it, the writing was on the wall that other than Janeway, none of these characters were ever going to be seen again. It's nonsense, but it's pretty nonsense. I will agree with you that Voyager did not mine its premise for conflict and tension, but at the same time it did provide something of a worthy successor to the next generation, which I think ultimately is what Paramount wanted from the show. DS9 had edgier content and got better ratings, mostly, but Paramount seemed to want something a bit more in line with the next generation for the flagship anchor show of the new network TV channel. Given that context, I think the show succeeded, and while there were bumps in the road, overall the journey was worthwhile and the show deserves re-evaluation. It's also worth noting that without Voyager, UPN would never have picked up Buffy the Vampire Slayer, allowing that show to survive two more seasons after the WB would have likely ended it due to contract disputes, and they never would have heard Veronica Mars. So there is something to be said about Captain Janeway paving the way for other female-led genre shows. Voyager will be forever the Trek show I watched from the beginning, and that I was on the ground floor for. I mean, I adored the original series as a kid, watching it in reruns, and I grew to really like The Next Generation at the end of its run, but Voyager was the show I looked forward to watching each week as a young teen. As such, it will always appeal to me in ways I doubt it will appeal to others. But for me, I'll always be glad to revisit The Delta Quadrant. Thanks, Luke. Well, Luke, you are very welcome, and uh, I appreciate... That uh, for the people who came in to Voyager, Voyager's the Star Trek. It's one of the things, I think, one of the things you get, as you get older, you stop being as precious about things. And um, as I said, when I was doing those Voyager shows, looking up what's happening now, the number of, of women and girls who are entering the professional world who attribute the the career paths to Captain Janeway is, is quite impressive and not to be sniffed at. He said legitimately sniffing because he's just started with a cold. And I think, you know, as we go along, Buffy will have more of that. Sydney Bristow, Veronica Mars. All of these things do tend to be important to people in ways that we perhaps don't consider when we tune into a show and go, well, she's no Captain Kirk. Well, no, but, you know, she is Captain Janeway. And um, for a lot of viewers, she's the captain. And that's perfectly fine. I don't know that I could have sat through all seven years of Voyager. But certainly watching like the roadmap made it a lot of fun. Our next email is from Jason Trenner, who has emailed in uh, about Space Cops. Well, it was Star Cops, really, but, you know, the principle's the same. Hello, Andy. What on earth were they thinking with the theme song for this show? It also sounds like the BBC in the 80s was like Fox when it came to science fiction. Still, the show sounded interesting. One of those weird little gems. Thanks for bringing it to my attention. Well, no problem at all. And I'm glad that you enjoyed it. I hope you check out Star Cops. They are all on uh, YouTube for you to have a look at. Uh, Daniel Doherty's emailed in. Voyager to the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> Hello, Andy. Hello, Daniel. <laughs> 
I said I was going to wait until you completed your Voyager roadmap to comment on these episodes, but to be perfectly honest, I've been struggling on how to put my feelings into words. It has to do with the fact I've never really warmed to most spin-offs or sequel shows. I think it has to do with the fact I get so attached to a specific cast of characters that if any later iterations doesn't have at least one original cast member in a significant, meaningful role, I have absolutely no interest in it. This is one of the many reasons why, as far as I'm concerned, Star Trek begins and ends with the original show. Yo, there are some exceptions to the rule, but it primarily involves comic books, specifically team books, X-Men, Avengers and the JLA, and certain specific legacy characters, Tim Drake, Ben Riley, and Mayday Parker, to name a few. In all those cases, there's usually some very strong connective tissue that bridges the gap between old and new. I've never gotten that connection with the Star Trek spin-offs. Each new series is just a brand new cast of characters to replace the previous cast, usually because of salaries. I mean, let's be honest, the only real reason CBS and Paramount want to keep making Star Trek spin-offs is so they can keep milking the franchise for all it's worth. But the die-hard fans, because the thought of not having any more Star Trek is, to their minds, a fate worse than death. I don't know if I'm the only one who sees this, or I need to put on my tinfoil hat. Now, what I'm about to say is not me being contrarian or divisive, but when I look at shows like Voyager, or even the current series, Discovery, I genuinely want to ask the fans, are you watching this because you genuinely like this show? Are you watching it just for the emotional security that Star Trek is still on the air in some form, even if it's a watered-down version of what it once was? Um, there's an in- There is an interesting question to be to be had there. Um, as I've said before, I didn't stick with Voyager when it erred, and I didn't stick through all of Enterprise either. I walked away from both of them because, like you, they weren't the Star Trek I was interested in watching. Some of that, though, was also lifestyle. At the time that Voyager was, was, I think, three seasons in, two or three seasons in, I forget the exact time scale, I got married and was having children. So you kind of walk away in the sense that you just you don't have the time to devote to watching stuff in the same way that you used to. So I've gone back to both Voyager and Enterprise in later later years and, and actually enjoyed them for what they are, to answer your question. I actually prefer Enterprise to Voyager overall, but I think Enterprise suffers from many of the same problems that Voyager suffered from. And I do think what Deep Space Nine scored is by having new, fresh-blood executive producer. I think that really helped the show. Discovery's a weird one. I have not enjoyed the second series of Discovery most at all. That really does go on the, the side of, are you still happy Star Trek is on the air in some form? And even though I don't know that I want to watch Discovery. I mean, I've said this before. Discovery says that it's in the Prime timeline, not the Kelvin timeline. And any complaints about the show are brushed off by the producers of whiny fan nitpicking. But I was watching one of the episodes of Discovery, I think it was the last one of the season, and Angela and Anya, my wife and daughter, were in the room with me. Now, they'd not watched Discovery. I tended to watch Discovery on my own, so I can, you know, when they're busy doing other things, or when Angela's at work, or whatever, so that I can concentrate on it. But the last episode, I think, dropped on a bank holiday weekend, so we were all home. And whilst I said, I'll watch Discovery if nobody's watching anything, they said, okay. And while we were watching it, both of their reactions were the same. Now, these are not hardcore Trekkies. These aren't hardcore fans whiny nitpicking. But when my my 15, 16-year-old daughter is saying, that's not the Enterprise, that's not Spock, I think you've got a problem. In that if a casual viewer like Anya is looking at that and going, that doesn't look like the bridge of the Enterprise, then you need to address the issues. 
And one of the problems I had with that was the amount of people who fell over themselves to fawn over that that newly designed Enterprise bridge with Captain Pike and Spock and Number One on. And I just thought it was shit. It's not the bridge of the, the original show. Don't try and tell me that this is the original timeline and then change the bridge so dramatically. It's not. And it because it means you can never have a scene like in Relics where Scotty will walk onto the original bridge and have Picard there with him. Because it's just so different. It's not the same thing. And no about, no amount of trying to convince me from the producers is going to work. You want to convince me this is in the original timeline, put Anson Mount on the original bridge. Because he, for me, was the only highlight of the season. I think I'd watch a Captain Pike show if they actually do the bridge properly. So, well, we'll see how it goes. Anyway, Daniel continues. Take Star Trek Voyager, for example. Imagine that in 1995, UPN created a brand new show simply called Voyager. It has the exact same cast, premise, episode stories and everything else, except it's not part of the Star Trek universe in any way. Would you have still watched every single episode for seven years? Probably not, no, unless it was a better show. Now, you could say, though, that The Orville is exactly that. It's a show that's just called The Orville. But let's be honest, The Orville's Star Trek, isn't it? But that's a better show than Discovery. Granted, for this rewatch, you've only watched selected episodes from Voyager's seven seasons. Even then, despite finding the occasional stellar episode, you yourself said the series never lived up to its premise. Voyager never pushed itself to be as daring as it could have been. It was just too safe. Now, I could go off on an entire rant about how being too safe is the fundamental problem with the Rick Berman era of Star Trek, but I think I've gone on enough here as it is. Until next time, may you never get caught in a transporter accident, stuck in a malfunctioning holodeck, or stuck in a turbo lift with Q and Trelane. Make sure you've always got your phaser by your side. Take care, and live long and prosper. Sincerely, Dan. Thank you, Dan. Uh, two completely diverging opinions there on Voyager from Dan and Luke. If you want to chip in to the discussion, feel free. HeyKidsComics at virginmedia.com. I do have a couple more emails from people here. Regan Jew, Keith Mason, Nathaniel Wayne, Jason Trenner and Thomas Oswalt have emailed in. Unfortunately, it's now 1835 uh, and I have to pick my wife up from work at 1900 hours. So I'm going to bugger off. So you email me in if you want to. Next time, I'm going to be going back to Jerry Anderson and viewing his least liked show, Joe 90. Let's see if time's been good to it, should we? Okay. I'll see you next time. And remember, everything's going to be okay. Okay.